All righty. Hello, everyone. Great to see you guys. Hello, community folk. Why don't you go ahead and wave to everybody that you can see? We already got, let's see here. Oh, geez. Almost 70 people already now in, even in just the first couple seconds. I see my mom. Hi, mom. Good to see you. All right. Lots and lots of people. Uh, great to see everybody. It's so good to get to get at least connect in this way, everybody. Well, welcome to Hope University. Can you guys believe that this is week 10 of Hope U? It's pretty amazing. And uh, we this has been a great summer treat and uh, for ways where we've all grown in God's word and an understanding of theology. And uh, so what a fantastic time this has been. Uh, while I'm still letting people into the room, I want to give a couple of just housekeeping items. Uh, one, we want to remind everybody that we have recorded these. We are not taking them off the internet. We're not doing anything separate with them. They are on the Hope University page on our website. And every single one of these sessions has been recorded and uh, is, hold on just one second, everybody. And, uh, oh, got to do one more thing. There we go. And uh, everything that uh, we've been doing with all these different sessions, it's all on our website. And it's all on YouTube. It's going to stay there. So if you want to go back and check out uh, any previous session, absolutely knock yourselves out. Go check that out. And we've heard uh, from many great people. This has been a great blessing. We hope to do this again in the future. So with that being said, um, you're going to be getting, if you've been a part of Hope You across the summer, you're going to get an email uh, with a survey uh, to help us learn about different sessions and whatnot and uh, for how we can make this better. So make sure if you get that email for that survey, please fill that out. Give us some good feedback for how we can make this an even better experience next time we do this. So that'd be super helpful. Um, let's see here. And a last little bit. So I'm still letting people into the room. Definitely over 70 people now. That's great. Uh, is that remember when we are doing our chats, we're always leave room at the end for Q&A. Don't wait to put your question until the very end. It's hard to go through those in. But if you have a question, Throughout the presentation, make sure you ask it right on the front end, and we'll get to help us organize that time a little bit better. Alrighty, so with that, I'm going to pass it along to Pastor Dale. Hey, everybody. It's so good to see everyone tonight, and this is our 10th and final session. And so um, what Pastor Trevor was saying a moment ago, we're planning on doing this next year, not because we still think we'll be in COVID, okay? So I just want to be clear about that. But <laughs> this has been such a great, uh, just such a great experience. And um, we are looking for spaces right now in our church. There is, um, I feel as a pastor, a need for us to push deeper and just to continue to help us grow in our faith in all of these ways. So this has been just a fantastic experience. So we'll talk a little bit more about the, um, about the uh, opportunity to give us some feedback again at the end of the session. Uh, I'm honored tonight um, to really uh, welcome uh, into our last session our, our own. And that's isn't that great to be able to say that our own Dr. Vic Copan. And uh, let me just tell you uh, quickly about Vic, if you don't know. Uh, so Vic is uh, he is a professor of ministry leadership and biblical studies at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University. He is actually the chair of the ministry department. Uh, which has uh, grown significantly. I'm on the advisory board, and I can attest to the fact uh, that the ministry has grown over there in a lot of different ways. Of course, we know and love Vic and Kathy, been a part of our church now over 15 years. Kathy, I'll just say, is the uh, longest-serving staff member on her team outside of Beth. And so I'm excited about that. 
Uh, at PBA, Vic is currently teaching classes in spiritual formation, New, Te- New Testament, ministry leadership, and Greek. Uh, Vic earned his doctoral degree uh, in theology from the University of Vienna in Austria, uh, where he and Kathy served as missionaries with the Navigators for over 15 years. And uh, a few years back, uh, Vic published uh, a significant book called St. Paul and the Spiritual Director, and also the book Changing Your Mind, the Bible, the Brain, and Spiritual Growth. I remember when he was working on, on that book. Um, Vic has also received, uh, I want to share, the Mentor of the Year Award at Palm Beach Atlanta University. He was uh, our older daughter's uh, mentor and just uh, helped her navigate her undergrad degree in a, a fantastic way. But I want to tell you what I love about uh, this man. Um, he practices what he preaches. And what I love about Vic and Kathy, I can get emotional about this, is, you know, um, it's a rare thing sometimes I want to say, maybe I shouldn't say this, to have somebody that is teaching at this high a level uh, that is a servant of Jesus in the local church. And this is why I love this man. Uh, he's had a deep impact upon my own faith, the faith of my wife, the faith of our family, and many uh, in our church. I dearly loved both of these folks. And so what an honor uh, for me to welcome uh, Dr. Vic Copan to teach tonight. And before I pray for him, can we just say welcome to him? Yeah. Let's pray. And I'm going to turn it over to, to my friend. God, thank you again for all the ways that you love us and you care for us. Thank you for uh, Vic and uh, Lord, his love for you just in the moments uh, running up to this when uh, Trevor prayed, um, you know, his acknowledging before you that the aroma of Christ is on our friend. And that is true. And so God, tonight Vic comes to share uh, some things that we want to learn and, 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 and get from him. He's out ahead of us, Lord, in some of these things. And so, Lord, we just want to come with a spirit of humility and learn. I pray an anointing upon this man. Thank you for the way that he represents you and serves you. Bless our time. Grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Vic, you have it. Thanks very much. Um, Welcome, everyone. Trevor, can you... um, uh, let me share the screen. For some reason, I can't do that. Go ahead and try that. I it said, I uh, allowed it once Dale said, amen. Okay, there you go. Can you see that now? Yes, sir. Perfect. Well, thanks everyone for the invitation to join you. Um, before I start, just wanted you to know that whenever I speak and write, I'm grateful to have Kathy's insights and input Uh, And that's the case with um, this talk tonight. So this talk is very much a collaborative effort between us. And so if anything works well, uh, blame Kathy. um, And if not, um, blame me. So in our time together, um, I want to give you some big ideas that'll help you become a better reader of the New Testament. We'll start off by asking the question, what is the New Testament? The answer to that question might seem obvious to some, but I don't want to assume anything and I'm sure, I'm sure you're familiar with what people say about the word assume. Then we'll look at some tips for understanding the New Testament. That's the, that's the big idea. So let's dive in. Well, unless you were born a week ago, you know that the New Testament is part of the Bible. 
And although we talk about the Bible as a book, it's actually a library of 66 books that tells one big story. And this story is divided up into six major parts. It tells about the creation of the world, about humanity's turn away from God, and about how God is determined to rescue humanity, and he hatched a plan that involved the nation of Israel. That's the part of the story that the Old Testament tells. Then in part four, that rescue plan culminates with Jesus, who deals with the sin problem from part two. Part five contains instructions for Jesus' followers, the church, to spread the message that God has begun restoring the world in Jesus. Part six gives us a symbolic picture of what creation will look like when it is ultimately restored. Now, this library of books we call the Bible is different from other books. It's special in that it claims to come from God. Paul explains this in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the words God-breathed are often translated as inspired in other versions, but I think the NIV brings out the Greek meaning even better than the word inspired, and it's this one element that makes it unlike any other book. Unfortunately, we're not told the process of how God breathed it. We're just told that he did. But because God breathed it, it has eternal relevance and authority for our lives today. It calls us not just to read it, but to respond to it in obedience. Now, let's look at this verse again. Notice the word scripture here. It's important to realize that this word is actually referring to the Old Testament. When the Apostle Paul wrote this, he was referring to what his Bible was and what Jesus' Bible was, and that was the Old Testament. So what about the New Testament? Was that inspired too? Well, the early Christians thought it was. Peter's last letter was written toward the end of his life, and the early Christian movement was some 30 years old by then, and Paul had written most, if not all, of his letters at that time, or by that time. At the end of Peter's letter, he makes some revealing comments about the letters of Paul and how they relate to the Old Testament scripture. See if you can pick out what he, um, pick that out as we read. He writes, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Now, this passage reveals a couple interesting things. First, notice that Paul's letters were being circulated around, and they were being copied, kept, and distributed among the churches. And second, notice the words, as they do the other scriptures. Peter is saying that the early Christians viewed Paul's letters as being on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. That means that within Paul's lifetime, people were already calling his letters scripture. That's amazing. Now let's look at another uh, verse. 
This one comes just a few verses before the one we just read in 2 Peter. Peter says, I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Notice how Peter's comparing two things. Let me make that comparison graphically clearer. Notice that Peter begins by referring to the holy prophets, which was code for Jews referring to the Old Testament. And then he puts Jesus' teachings, get this, as they were passed on through the New Testament apostles, on an equal plane with the Old Testament prophets themselves. So we discover in these two passages that Paul's, write, uh, that Paul's writings and the other writings we have in the New Testament were received as authoritative and inspired apparently from the very beginning. Now, let's go back to what Paul said in 2 Timothy and look at the second half because it indicates the purpose or effect God wants the Bible to have on us. Paul tells us that the Bible is a useful book. In other words, it's got practical purposes. It wasn't designed to answer every question we might have or cover every topic we're interested in. The Bible's aim is a practical one, and Paul then goes on to explain what that is. It's useful for teaching us how to think and live. It's for getting after us when our thinking about thinking and our lifestyle is wrong. And when we get off course, its purpose is to correct us, and its aim is to train us how to live in line with the character of God. And the ultimate result of all this, Paul goes on to say, is so that we can be fully prepared to do good in the world, just as we saw Jesus doing it. So, regular reading of the Bible was meant to change your life. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews makes this same point. He says the word of God is alive and active, and it operates like a double-edged sword. It cuts in between the many thoughts and attitudes that we have, and exposes them to the light. By doing that, it helps uncover where we're going wrong. In short, God's word is meant to change our lives, and we should read it that way. That's why I love the fact that at Community of Hope, we use the SOAP method to read scripture, because it includes two important steps in Bible reading. Embedded in the SOAP acronym, is the reminder to take time to observe what is going on in that passage and also reflect on how you can apply it to your life today. In the observation step, you're seeking to understand the big meaning of the passage, the universal truths for everyone. But in the application step, God gives you something very personal just for you that he wants you to build into your life. This is God's personal word to you for that day. But don't mix the two up, the observation step and the application step. The very personal message for you is not necessarily the big meaning for everyone. So, just so you, so you know, in the rest of our time together, I'm going to focus on how we get at the big meaning that the author intended for everyone. By the way, another thing I love about Community of Hope's SOAP reading plan is that it reinforces the importance of reading through complete books of the Bible. If you use our Word of God Speak reading plan, you can read through the entire New Testament in less than nine months. It's not a flip open the Bible at random and read here a little, there a little approach. 
It's about reading through complete books of the Bible. If you're watching a movie, you don't just pick a random place and watch five minutes one day, then on the next day pick another random scene and watch it and so on. If you did that, you'd be totally confused about what's going on. The best way to watch a movie and the best way to understand the Bible is to read whole books all the way through, even if you're doing it one chapter or two a day. Okay, those were some comments about the New Testament in general as it relates to the Bible as a whole. Now let's dig in to talk about some tips for understanding the New Testament itself. But let's dive into this section like any good sadistic teacher does by giving you a quiz. I'm going to put a brief text on the screen, and I want you to tell me what kind of writing it is. Keep track of how many you get right. And the person who gets the most right gets a brand new Ferrari from Pastor Dale and Pastor Trevor. We're going to go fast, so be prepared. The first one is this. Once upon a time. What type of writing does this signal? It is a fairy tale. Two, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. What type of writing is this? It's a proverb. Next, dearest Susan, love John. What type of writing does this signal? It's a letter. My love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. My love is like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. What type of writing does this signal? It's obvious that it's poetry. Number five, in 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon led the first European expedition to Florida. What's this type of writing? It is history. And finally, a rabbi, a priest, and a minister walk into a bar. What's this type of writing? It is a joke. Okay, so here we have six different types of literature. Scholars often refer to them as genres, and it's helpful to know that each type of literature can, con con can convey the truth. However, each one conveys the truth in different ways. That's really important to know. What's amazing is that we have trained our brains to recognize these different types of literature and read them correctly in our own culture without even registering we're doing that. However, when it comes to reading ancient literature, we need to realize we may not always pick up automatically how we are to read them. So we have to be more alert. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we encounter four types of writing or genres. There are four biographies of Jesus that we call the Gospels. There's one book of history. The book of Acts is a history of the early church. Following that, you'll find a boatload of letters in different letter styles. The ones in yellow on the screen are actually sermons in letter form. And some of these letters are addressed to whole churches, some to individuals, and some to all the Christians in a large region. The final type of writing in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. It's actually a mashup of three types of writing prophecy, apocalyptic literature, and letters. A couple of weeks ago, Dr. Ben Witherington gave a great talk on apocalyptic literature at Hope University, so I won't go over that here. I'd encourage you to watch the video if you missed it. It's on the COH website. It's a great one. 
So let's start with some tips for how to understand the biographies in the New Testament. We refer to these biographies as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they really are biographies of the life of Jesus. The first question we might want to ask is, well, why are there four? Well, one reason, ask any lawyer about this, is the simple fact that it's always better to have more than one witness to anything. But whenever you have multiple witnesses, you also have different ways of describing the facts. And sometimes there seem to be outright discrepancies or disagreements between the four Gospels. And this can make Christians nervous, but it doesn't need to at all. So let's talk about why there are differences between the Gospels. It helps to remember, uh, it, helps when we, um, it helps when we remember a couple things. First of all, just like different eyewitnesses to a car accident, each person remembers different aspects of what happened. That's just the way our memory works. Depending on where the eyewitnesses stood, some would notice certain details and others would notice something else. Were two shots fired or was it three? Did the rooster crow twice or did he crow three times? Ultimately, in a court case, it's the big facts that everyone agrees on that you would focus on. So one person thought the car was blue, the other remembers it was green, but everyone agrees that the truck hit the car. And that's the same with the four Gospels. All four agree that Jesus was killed and that he rose from the dead. Now, the fact that there are some small differences in the various stories that the eyewitnesses tell actually gives them more credibility. A police detective I know told me once that if all the witnesses say the exact same thing, it's a sign that they've actually colluded together and fabricated their story. So slight differences, rather than detracting from the truthfulness of these biographies, are actually a sign of authenticity. A second tip regarding differences among the Gospels is to remember that biographies aren't necessarily chronological. For example, suppose someone wants to write a biography of Abraham Lincoln's life. They couldn't cover every single thing in his life, so they might decide to sort the various facts they want to cover by categorizing them. They might have a chapter focusing on the speeches that he gave and another one on key legislation that he passed and still another chapter on his political career. And then they might have another chapter dedicated to recounting funny stories from his life. Or perhaps another biographer might, to might decide to start with the end of Abraham Lincoln's life and then write the rest as a flashback. And that seems to be what is going on in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put the story of Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple in the very last week of Jesus's life. But John puts it right at the beginning of his gospel. Again, this difference in chronology between the gospels makes some Christians nervous, but it really shouldn't. He's doing what other biographers before him and after him have done. John intentionally chooses to start with a significant event from the end of Jesus' life to frame his entire biography. My point again is this. 
biographies are seldom strictly chronological, and we actually can learn a lot by noticing those types of differences between the Gospels. Now, a third reason why there are differences between the Gospels has to do with whom the author was writing to. Matthew was writing to Jews to show Jesus was their king. You may have noticed that Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus that highlights two individuals. It highlights Abraham, the founder of the nation of Israel, then David, Israel's most famous king. Matthew's strategy is to show his readers that Jesus was embedded in the nation of Israel and that he was born into the royal line of King David. And by doing this, Matthew wants to convince his audience that Jesus was the promised king of the Jews that the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied. That's also why Matthew includes the story of the Magi bringing gifts to the baby Jesus. Remember what they said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, one more thing to know about Matthew is this. Because he was writing to Jews, he has far more Old Testament quotations than any other gospel. You'll want to check those quotations out as you're reading because Matthew is trying to show his Jewish audience that all of the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to Jesus. Now, some comments on Mark's gospel. Mark was a close associate of Peter, and he wrote his gospel while the two of them were in Rome. And he's writing his biography of Jesus primarily for Gentiles living in Rome and beyond. That's why you'll find explanatory comments inserted throughout Mark's gospel that explain Jewish customs that Gentiles wouldn't know about. And that's also why Mark translates words into Greek from, the, from either the Hebrew or Aramaic because the Gentile audience wouldn't know what he was talking about. Now Luke. Luke was by training a medical doctor and he's the only Gentile who wrote a biography of Jesus. He addresses his biography to a Roman official by the name of Theophilus. And Luke was the only one of the gospel writers who wasn't around as an eyewitness of the life of Jesus as the other three were. And that explains why Luke interviewed a lot of eyewitnesses when he composed his gospel. The introduction to his biography is fascinating because he clearly spells out his methodology that he followed to write it. Let's read how he describes it and then talk about it. And now I'm going to take a drink. It's water, really. Many have undertaken, Luke writes, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, let's notice a couple things here. When you compare this introduction to other biographies and histories from that time period, 
you will see that Luke is doing everything a biographer and historian at that time did. He went to the primary sources. He wasn't satisfied with hearsay and secondhand information. So he traveled directly to the places Jesus lived and interviewed the eyewitnesses directly. Have you ever noticed how often Luke mentions people by name in the book? Why does he do that? He's doing that to signal to the readers, these are the people I interviewed. If you don't believe me, go check them out with these people directly. These people will confirm everything that I'm saying and will confirm that my account is accurate. Lastly, notice the phrase orderly account in verse 3. The word orderly doesn't necessarily mean a strict chronological order, though it can mean that. That's why we find Luke, the word points to something that's actually carefully designed and crafted. That's why we find Luke clumping some miracle stories together and then bundling almost all of Jesus's parables together in one place instead of inserting them at the exact time Jesus gave them. What's especially interesting about Luke's gospel is that more than any other gospel, he took time to interview women and include their experiences that the other gospels didn't. Here are just a few examples that you can see on the screen. And since Luke was a physician, that might explain why he felt comfortable talking with these women about their pregnancy experiences. You'll also notice that Luke has a special heart for the poor and the disenfranchised. He emphasizes them a lot more than the other Gospels. Now, the final Gospel was written by John. He wrote for a Jewish and Gentile audience located in what is now modern-day Turkey. That's what scholars think. John's Gospel is quite different from the others. And that's because he wrote significantly later than all three of the others. And he actually assumes that his readers know the other Gospels. For example, notice this. In John 1.40, John introduces Andrew as Simon Peter's brother. But he hasn't even introduced Simon Peter yet. He only goes on to introduce him later. John's actually assuming the readers already know who Simon Peter is. And notice how, when John tells the story of Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, he throws in a side comment in parentheses, explaining that this was the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with her hair. Well, that's curious. What's curious about that is that John doesn't tell that story until the next chapter but he already assumes that his readers know the story. So my point is that John is writing later than the other Gospels and assumes his readers know one or all the other of the three biographies. And that's why his approach is so different. He doesn't have to cover the same territory that the other three have already covered so well. He's able to go into the deeper meaning of the life and teachings of Jesus. That observation may explain something else in John's Gospel. If you have a red-letter Bible, which puts the words of Jesus in red ink, you'll notice that particularly in John's Gospel, there are long stretches of red ink, sometimes chapter after chapter. 
Whereas the other Gospels focus a lot on the actions of Jesus, John, in contrast, focuses on the deeper meaning of the teachings of Jesus. John not only records longer accounts of Jesus' teaching, he also adds a lot more theological reflection about what Jesus did and taught. Also, you might know that John was one of the three disciples in Jesus' inner circle. Both James and Peter were dead by the time that John wrote. As the last one in that inner circle, it seems that John felt compelled and what it, it was his duty to go beyond the other Gospels and draw out the deeper meaning of Jesus' words and actions before they were lost forever. Another thing that John does to help us understand this Gospel is that he tells us exactly what his purpose was in writing. In John 20, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice that John didn't try to include every single miracle that Jesus did. He was selective in what he chose. And did you notice that he didn't call miracles miracles? He calls them signs. That's deliberate. What John has done is carefully select particular miracles that would function as signs that in a profound way would reveal who Jesus truly was. And because John's purpose is to show us that Jesus was the Son of God, that's why he starts his gospel in the cosmic way that he does. The very first words of his biography take us all the way back to creation, and we discover that Jesus existed even before creation itself. John is the only gospel writer who does that. Well, I hope that these tips are at least a beginning for you to help you understand why there are differences between the four gospels and to help you understand something of the character of each of them. Now let's look at, at a few other tips about the Gospels. One thing that's important to remember is that Jesus was actually a rabbi, and that means he taught like the rabbis of his day. And because of that, it's helpful to know some of the typical literary devices that rabbis used in their teaching style that Jesus also used. One thing was common for Jewish rabbis to do was to use hyperbole in their teachings. In case you've forgotten what hyperbole is, it's an exaggeration to make a point. If I've told you that once, I've told you that a million times. That's hyperbole. There's nothing more frustrating than when you use hyperbole to make a point and someone says, you didn't say it a million times. Well, we all know it's not literally true. You're just trying to make a point. And that's why some people struggle with statements like this one in the New Testament. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. If you don't realize that Jesus is using hyperbole here, it'll mess you up. How do we know it's hyperbole? because hating your parents would be breaking one of the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. Of course Jesus doesn't want you to hate your family members. He's just saying that your love for him should take 
precedence even over what you love the most. And the same thing's going on in Matthew 19. After Jesus' conversation with a rich young man, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't saying that it's impossible for rich people to get into heaven. It's hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. He's just saying it's difficult for wealthy people to detach from their possessions. By the way, Jesus was a master at such word pictures. And this comparison and the others he used would have struck his listeners as extremely funny. And it shows that Jesus had a great sense of humor. And I imagine that's one of the reasons why people enjoyed listening to him and hanging out with him. Now, another element of rabbinic teaching style was to use parables. What's a parable? It's simply a made-up story designed to make a point. But in order to understand parables, we need to know the few basic rules of how they work. And for the first rule, it's helpful to know that in many ways, parables work like telling a joke. So let me illustrate by telling a joke. A rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a Methodist pastor walk into a bar. They sit down and have a drink together, and they decide to have a friendly competition. They come up with the challenge to see who of them is best at converting the bears in the local woods. A week passes, and they meet back at the bar to compare notes. The priest says, I was walking through the woods and came upon a patch of berries where I spotted a bear. I walked up to the bear gave him Holy Communion, and converted him then and there. The Methodist pastor said, When I was walking through the woods, I came across a bear in a stream as he was catching fish. So I waded out to him, baptized the bear, and converted him on the spot. Then the priest and the pastor look over to the rabbi, and the rabbi is in rough shape. He's in total traction with a full body cast and with cuts and scrapes on his face and hands. What happened, asked the priest and the pastor. Oi, the rabbi says, now that I think about it, I probably shouldn't have begun with circumcision. Now, question. If someone were listening to the joke and then at the end of the joke began to ask, why'd they go in the bar? Which bar was it? Why was it a Methodist pastor, not a Baptist? What were they doing there at the same time? What did they have all that, what did they have to drink? Um, when, when you hear questions like that, you think that person was crazy. Why? Because we know that those things are completely irrelevant to the punchline of the joke. The point of the joke is simply the punchline. The details are there just to make the joke work. They're kind of like the furniture you see on the set of a play. You need the furniture to make the play work, but it has no significance beyond that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how parables work. There's one overall point, the punchline, that the parable is trying to make, and the rest is just furniture. Now, a lot of people make this mistake with the parables, but it's particularly dangerous when it comes to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You might recall the story. There was a poor beggar named Lazarus who sat outside the gate of a rich man's house. The rich man never shared any of his wealth with him. Eventually, both the rich man and Lazarus died. And what follows in the parable 
is a conversation between Lazarus in heaven and the rich man who's in agony in the flames of hell. Now, some people think that this parable is teaching us what the afterlife is going to be like and that the people in heaven will be able to see and talk to the people in hell. By the way, it's clear from other passages in scripture that that's just not the case. But when you examine the parable carefully and look for the punchline, you discover that this parable wasn't written to give us a geography lesson of heaven and hell. The punchline of the parable is to teach us that those who have more in this life should show compassion and share with those in need. Everything else in the parable is just the furniture needed to make the punchline work. Okay, another tip for how to interpret parables that goes along with what I just said. And that is to, um, is to look at what came right before the parable. We're talking about the setup of the parable or the situation that prompted Jesus to give it. For example, in Luke 15, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were upset that Jesus hung out with sinful types. In the, uh, in the Pharisees' mind, the truly spiritual people, like they were, wouldn't associate with those immoral people. And so the Pharisees began to look down their self-righteous noses at Jesus. And that's what prompted Jesus to tell a parable. That's the setup. Then after the setup, Jesus gives three back-to-back -back parables, each one teaching the same thing and reinforcing it. By the way, another thing, another tip, anytime someone, something's repeated, the author is signaling you to pay attention because he's making an, an especially important point. Each of these parables in Luke 15 makes the point that God cares about lost people no matter who they are or how low they have sunk. He goes after them to help them out of the mess they made in their life. Now it's helpful to compare these parables these three parables with one another, and notice what's alike and what's different. That's another tip. In the first two parables, the phrase is repeated that there's rejoicing over a sinner who repents. When we come to the third parable, however, there's a twist. You'll notice that a lot. There's often a twist in the last element of a teaching of Jesus or a parable. You'll want to especially check that out. In the, in the parable of the lost son, the father rejoices over the wayward son who returns. However, notice the older son doesn't join in the father's rejoicing. Instead, he's mad at his father and starts muttering that his father is so generous and forgiving that he welcomes his wayward son back. And that's how the parable ends. Now, connect this with the setup again in verses 1 and 2. Do you see how the older brother, who in the parable is muttering about how generous and forgiving the father is, represents the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who were muttering about how generous and welcoming Jesus was to sinners? What Jesus is doing here is trying to correct the Pharisees' understanding of what God is like. And looking at the setup and connecting the setup with the parable particularly with the way the parable ends, helps you notice these things. 
Okay, a third thing that's important to understand is how the rabbis of Jesus' day used the Old Testament in their teaching. Here's a screenshot of Luke 4 in a study Bible. It's easy to notice where Jesus or the other New Testament writers are referring to something out of the Old Testament because a good study Bible puts those Old Testament references in the margins. So when you're trying to understand the meaning of a passage in the New Testament, it's always a good idea to go back and look at the Old Testament passages that are being referred to. By the way, don't forget that the paragraph headings and the study notes at the Bible are not inspired. Sometimes people think that those are part of the original Bible. They're not. I know because I'm friends with some of the scholars who wrote those study notes, and they're definitely not inspired. The headings in the study notes are just helpful tools that were added by people in our lifetime. So, back to the Old Testament references that you can find in the margins of many Bibles. Here's an example from Luke 4. Jesus is in the synagogue in his hometown at the beginning of his ministry, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Notice how easy it is to find that passage Jesus is quoting from because the reference is given right in your margin. When you look up that passage in Isaiah that Jesus quoted from and read the surrounding context of that passage, you'll discover significant insights into why Jesus chose this passage to quote from, and it's powerful. My point is this. If you chase down those Old Testament references in the margin, when you're reading, that will take you a quantum leap forward to understanding not only the New Testament passage, you'll also begin to better understand the Old Testament itself as well. And what's really cool, too, is that looking back into the Old Testament, you will discover what Jesus was talking about in John 5 when he says that the Old Testament scriptures were testifying about him. Okay, we've covered the biographies, and now it's on to history, and I'd only, I only want to make two points here. I have to look at my clock to see what time we have. How am I doing here? Oh, I'm doing great. Okay, now let's shift gears and talk a bit about the only book of history that we have in the New Testament, the book of Acts. And I'll, like I said, I'll only make two comments. Acts is a history of how the church started and how it spread. As you read it, you'll be inspired in your own faith by the many examples of the early Christians. But whenever you're reading history, and that includes the book of Acts, it's important to remember it's just that. It's history. The stories aren't necessarily given as examples of what you should do. It's just a record of what happened. For example, Acts includes an incident where Paul and Barnabas had a harsh dispute over whether they should take John Mark with them on their missionary journey. The book of Acts gives us the unvarnished history of even the mistakes people made. It's not telling us necessarily to emulate that. So that's the first thing to remember about Acts' history. The second thing about the book of Acts is that it helps you understand the setting for the letters that come later in the New Testament. And with that, let's turn and talk about the letters next. Let me take another. 
Okay, the first tip to help you become a better reader of the letters in the New Testament is to realize that when we read these letters, we're actually reading someone else's mail. Although that applies to the rest of the scriptures as well, it's especially important to remember when reading the letters. These letters were not addressed to us directly. The authors were addressing Christians who were dealing with the challenges of living their faith out in the Roman Empire of the first century. We have to first understand the message that the author of the letters was telling them back in the Roman Empire before we can ask what it means for us today living in the American Empire, so to speak. And because of that, it's important to learn everything you can about three major things when you're reading the letters. The first thing you want to do is to learn what you can about the author and his circumstances. How do you do that? Well, you'll often find this all the way through the letter, but particularly at the beginning and the ends of the letters. For example, in the first verse of Paul's letter to Philemon, we discover that Paul is in prison again. He's in prison a lot in his letters. But you won't just find out about the author at the beginning of the letter. Sometimes the situation of the author is given toward the end of the book. So at the end of 2 Timothy, we discover that Paul was writing this letter from prison at the very end of his life. Most likely, 2 Timothy was his last letter. And when a person writes something, knowing that they are about to die, those words carry a lot of significance. And that should impact how you read this letter. At other times, you'll find information about the author sprinkled throughout the letter. And paying attention to who the author is and what his circumstances are will deepen your appreciation for what they're saying. And that's why every time I read Paul's letter to the Philippians, knowing that Paul is in chains in prison while he's writing it, and seeing how often he talks about joy in that letter, every time it whacks me upside the head when I realize how much I'm bothered by the little inconveniences I experience in my everyday life. That's what can happen when you learn about the author and his circumstances. In a similar way, it's helpful to learn what you can about the recipients. The recipients are nearly always named in the first few verses of the New Testament letters. It'll say something like, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, when you start reading a letter of the New Testament, it's helpful to go back to the book of Acts, like I said earlier, and see how the church was started and under what circumstances. For example, in Acts 17, we learn that Paul spent only three or four weeks in his first visit to the city in Thessalonica. That chapter describes how Paul started the church in the synagogue and how a large number of God-fearing Greeks joined the church. And this made the Jews of the city so jealous, it caused a riot. And it got so ugly and dangerous that Paul had to flee from there in the middle of the night and wasn't able to say goodbye to most of them. Now, imagine the questions these freshly baked Christians in Thessalonica had about Paul. 
Why did Paul skip town so quickly? Was the guy a criminal or a religious scammer? Was he legit or was he trying to sell us something and make a fast buck like other religious teachers were doing at that time? And when you turn back to Paul's letters, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, you'll discover those are exactly the types of questions that Paul is having to address throughout the letter. So the book of Acts is a great tool to help you learn about the recipients. You can also learn about the recipients in the book as well, but Acts is a good supplement. Now, another tool that's helpful is a website called thebibleproject.com. The website has brief video introduction to each of the 66 books of the Bible. It's like having cliff notes for the entire Bible um, on the web. These videos are actually so good that I require my students at PBA to watch them for my courses. Kathy and I read through the Community of Hope's Bible reading plan on version every year, and you can actually access the, the Bible Project videos there as well. And before we start a new book, we always watch the Bible Project video introduction. It gives you a summary of the whole book in about seven minutes, and it tells some background information about the author and the recipient. And then what's super helpful is it walks through the entire outline of the, of the book. And that way, when you are reading a chapter a day, you know how, we know how, what we're reading that day fits into the flow of the whole book and what it says makes sense to us. Another tip for understanding the letters of the New Testament is to look for repeated words or ideas. We've mentioned this briefly already. Repeated ideas give you an insight into the particularly challenging issues in life of the recipients that the author is emphasizing. And when you emphasize something, you often repeat it. Talk to your wife about that. Um, repetition throughout the Bible is a way of signaling something important, so we should pay attention. For example, when you read Ephesians 4, you notice how often Paul emphasizes the word one. That's a tip-off that the Ephesian Christians were struggling with unity. After you discovered that, you'll see that, you'll see that idea all throughout the letter to the Ephesians, that disunity was a major issue in the church. Okay, another example. At the beginning of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he uses the word comfort nine times in five verses. It's almost annoying how often he says it, but not for the Corinthians. That repeated word comfort should make you stop and take a closer look into the text to discover why they needed comforting so much. And when you do, you'll discover that the believers in Corinth were in a state of deep grief, and you'll discover why they were in that state. Okay, one final example. Throughout Romans chapter 8, the word spirit comes up again and again. In cases like that, I find, it, I find it helpful to make a list of all the things I can learn about the word or the concept that's being focused on. It's fascinating what you can discover when you do this. Okay, that was a marathon jaunt uh, for, with some tips on how to be a better reader of each of these types of literature in the New Testament.
Let me wind down our time by talking about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And before that, I'll take another drink. Remember back at the beginning when we talked about the fact that the entire Bible is inspired, indicating it had its origins in God? Well, even though all of Scripture is inspired, that doesn't mean all of Scripture is an equally clear or accurate picture of what God is like. Take a look at what the writer of Hebrews says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He's referring to the Old Testament here. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And get this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. From that point on, throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer begins to use the word superior to talk about Jesus in relationship to virtually everything in the Old Testament. He says Jesus is superior to angels, to Moses, to priests, to the Old Testament sacrificial system, and even the temple itself. What the writer is doing is this. He's indicating that God's revelation to people was, over time, getting progressively clearer and better, but that the clearest and most accurate revelation has come in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Notice what it says. Jesus is exactly like God because he is God. When you look at the character of Jesus, you are seeing the clearest picture of the character of God himself. That means the words and values of Jesus are the exact representation of the words and value of God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that the Old Testament was only a shadow of God and his character, but that Jesus is the reality to which the shadow is pointing. He even goes so far as to say that the Old Covenant is obsolete and outdated. So, What am I trying to say here, and why am I trying to say it? Well, people often struggle with, let's say, the uncomfortable parts of the Old Testament. The violence, some of the strange laws, the punishments that seem so severe. And if you've never struggled with anything in the Old Testament, you probably haven't read it very closely. And that's why the message of the book of Hebrews is a huge help to me whenever I find something in the Old Testament that bothers me. Why? because it reminds me that the Old Testament only gives me a shadow understanding of who God is. Jesus' example and teaching should always take precedence over anything that's confusing or disturbing in the Old Testament. The way I handle the uncomfortable text in the Old Testament is this, and maybe this will help you too. Whenever I come across something that I'm reading in the Old Testament, I try to figure it out and reconcile it with my understanding of God as Jesus reveals him. If I can't resolve it, I just put it in my box labeled problems with the Old Testament. At some later point, I'll try coming back to this box and pulling out one of the problems to see if I can figure it out now. If I can, great. If not, I just put it back in the box. But I don't pitch out my faith in Jesus just because I can't figure out the stuff that I have in that box. I hold on to the truth that Jesus is the best description of who God is. Okay. Now, in closing, let me give you one last tip, and it's the most important one of all. 
The most significant tip I want to leave you with is just to faithfully read the New Testament. Read the Bible over and over again. You don't have to be an expert in theology to understand the, the Bible. But the more you read it, the more you'll begin to connect the dots, understanding the context, and you'll be able to apply it correctly to your life. And ultimately, that's what God wants to do with the scriptures. And if you're not regularly reading through, especially the New Testament, I would encourage you to go to the COH website, click on Next Steps, and then find How to Read the Bible page. There you'll see a reading plan that takes you through the whole New Testament in nine months. It also explains the soap process of Bible reading in detail. If you do that on a regular basis, you'll soon be able to understand the New Testament better and better. Well, that's it. We'll stop at that point and open it up for some more questions, for some questions. All right. <clears throat> Great stuff, Vic. Great stuff. Let me get back to your gallery view. And uh, hey, Kim, first off, before we pass it to Pastor Dale uh, for our Q&A time, can we give a hand to Vic for teaching us? Thank you so very much. So funny. There's plenty of times where you could see it in the chat, and I could see it with Pastor Dale's face and my face where you had us dying. You couldn't hear it, but we were dying laughing. And uh, so we were also... Uh, open up with really great insight and super helpful tips for understanding the New Testament. Also um, done with your your classic patent sense of humor. So thanks, Vic. Um, Dale, looks like I have you off of mute. It's me, you, and Vic. And uh, let's jump into the Q and A. Well, a couple that, things. That's can... a great combination, by the way. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to say the burning question actually is that really bad joke. Was that Kathy's or yours? That's what we want to know. I will never tell that. Okay. All right. I, I want to gonna... preserve my marriage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, have cho- you have chosen well there. Um, I thought it w- a couple things, and then we'll get right into some of the questions, Vic, that we have. I thought it was a really good insight when you were mentioning earlier the different types of writing and then how the different types of writing play into really our understanding of what we may receive personally out of the text. Would there be anything else you would add to us? You know, I, I loved how you were saying there are certain clues we can watch for. Is there anything you else you would say to us around that that might be helpful as when we're, say, reading a book uh, in the New Testament to better understand what type of writing it is? Well, probably the, the best thing to do is to buy a really good study Bible. Okay. And that'll, uh, the introduction of every book will give you kind of clues to help you understand how to approach it. Yeah. Is um, that what you're getting at? or, or am yeah, I no, that's, that's helpful. And um, I think that's really a good thing. Or you could take my classic PBA on interpreting the Bible. Yeah, we could all run over there. It's close enough. We can do that. It is. Um, Vic, you know, do you have, do you have a recommendation on, on what type of study Bible, if there's one in particular that you would recommend? There are some, there are some good ones out there. Um, there's the uh, one that I like a lot um, is the Bible background uh, study Bible that, um, that uh, basically goes into a lot of detail about the backgrounds of various things that we just don't know about. Um, yeah. And 
that helps us tremendously understand why Jesus said certain things yeah. and why he he or why the both the Old Testament and the New Testament said certain things. So I love to, Go ahead, Dale. I love what you mentioned earlier too about um, you know uh, when you said in the Old Testament when you're you, you're coming across things you don't understand. You said, put them in this box. I come back to them later. Uh, I And the reference specifically where you mentioned just reading the scriptures over and over again, because I have found, and, and many on, the, on, the, on our Zoom tonight, I'll remember that I'll occasionally say in a message, it's, we start with what we know, we work out to the edges of what we don't know. And I would say, and I'm wondering if you'd agree that, and that just through reading the scriptures over and over again, making a practice of that, and something we're going to move, I'm going to move us into in a moment. Um, the Holy Spirit has a way of just kind of revealing truth to us, so that, in other words, wouldn't you find that box shrinks over time just because you're reading and you're you're familiarizing yourself with Holy Scripture? That that is totally the case. Um, that's. That's really the best thing to do, and scholars do nothing, uh, do nothing else except read over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, they might have a few more tools, but 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 you can actually figure out a lot of the tools that scholars use, yeah. and 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 gain those insights just as well as a scholar could. Yeah, uh, that's that's just great. Um, I wanted to say one of the questions that came up that that I think really is uh, right in this zone. You brought up the uh, the idea around again the you know we we do the soap method. We encourage people to do scripture observation, application, prayer. Uh, one question though came up about so if if we are reading the scriptures and we know that we're reading someone else's mail, does it in any way deter from the fact that we are to take from this word, of course? personal application for us. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, just that whole process. Sure. That's, that's really good. Um, one, one's, uh, one Bible scholar that I, I appreciate a lot, his name is John Walton. He says the Bible was, was not written to us, but it was written for us. And it means that I think God had in mind future generations of people that would be reading it. But we have to realize that, the, for example, in the New Testament, they were living, the first Christians were living in the Roman Empire that, um, that, that um, had certain norms and certain ways of living that we don't have today. So slavery was baked into the whole system. Right. And... Um, a woman was on the bottom of the totem pole and um, she had no voice at all. And Paul was writing, giving instructions to to people who were living in that context where they couldn't get out of slavery. And if if they actually did something and were very vocal about slavery, they would have their heads lopped off. Right. So that's why Paul, if you're reading carefully, he's undermining slavery all the way through. Right. But the Roman officials can't accuse him, accuse him of being subversive to the Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Very, that's a great point, because yeah, I think the same way also, like what you referenced there in terms of 
the value and role of women. Jesus ennobled women in every conversation. So you see these you see these conversations ascending uh, rather than descending. It's a it's a powerful that's a powerful truth for us to to understand. Um, yeah. So. Um, the the idea then of even though it's you know again quote unquote someone else's male you know this is important for us to understand i was talking to somebody today and i said you know we learn a lot from our own experience but we can also learn through the experiences of others right and so when we're reading scripture we're learning what god is honoring what god is putting his blessing on what god is not putting his blessing on through that so there's some importance of that trev i think you've got a question if, uh, one person sent me this question privately on the chat, and uh, they asked, hold on, just one second, I lost my place in the thread. Uh, Vic, it's around uh, Jesus' teaching on divorce in Mark 10, particularly verses 11 and 12. Um, I'll just read it here for context for you, if that's okay, Vic. Um, the word Jesus says in Mark 10, uh, were they in the house when they were in the house again? The disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, "Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery." And so the person was asking, in particular, with those verses, should this be actually viewed as a hyperbole? Um, when you were referencing that earlier, does that go in that category? How should somebody? treat this, which, you know, that's a tough saying of Jesus. How would you approach that? What would you say? Yeah, that's a, a hard one. And, and one that we probably can't uh, go into um, in, in a lot of detail. Um, and we'd have to, we'd have to look at everything that, 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 that is said in the ancient world. Um, and in Jesus day, actually um, divorce and, and remarriage happened a lot. Mm. All a Jewish husband would have to say is I divorce you I divorce you I divorce you three times and it was official that the wife was uh, was gone wow I didn't know and that. so Jesus is um, so it, it's not it's not hyperbole um, but Jesus is speaking into a culture where it was really easy um, and very uh, very frequent that that there were, were just just a uh, Trivial divorces, so to speak. Okay. Um, and so we have to understand, and that's why learning more about the culture is really helpful to understand the intention of Jesus. Okay? So it, it's not hyperbole, um, but then we'd have to, in a sense, dig into that passage um, a lot and, and, and talk about it, and then talk about the other things that Jesus says um, about uh, about divorce and, and Paul as well. Um, mm -hmm. I I don't think um, don't don't consider me a heretic, but from what I read, um, I I don't think divorce is absolutely forbidden at all times. Mm -hmm. um, I have justifications for that, and I'm not trying to play footloose and fancy free with Jesus, um, but but I. I I think Jesus would agree with me on that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're right. It's a very complicated question. And that's why, you know, it's, it's almost unfair to ask you like, Hey, huge issue, but it's a real question that people have. 
And um, I, I totally agree with you, what you're saying, that you have to look at the intent of Jesus, which we were just talking about Jesus's role of always trying to protect and elevate women. We were just talking about this is exactly from what you were saying. I didn't know it was that easy to, to for a man to divorce a yeah. woman. So this protects women. And it sounds yeah. like it's, it's there to protect a victim in a situation rather yeah, than very, just very hard fast rule. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks, Vic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Vic, there are lots of questions, you know, really around the whole idea of the canon and, uh, you know, other other books in the uh, that did not say make it into Holy Scripture. There's a question uh, around, you know, some of these other books. And um, have you ever have you ever personally researched any of those books? Are they, you know, would they be considered helpful? We, we're going to say very clearly they're not. Uh, they don't fall under the same idea that you started with. Here's Holy Scripture. God has breathed on it, this sort of thing. But, you know, just some questions about the canon and other other books yeah. out there. Yeah. Well, that, that would be another good topic, actually, for, for next summer's um, Hope University. But I can say a few things. Um, mm. When you uh, I've, I've read. I've read quite a number of the those other so-called gospels. And when you when you read them. Um, and you can find a number of them actually on scholarly websites on the online. When you read them, you notice something uh, significant. Um, all of them are much later than the New Testament writings themselves. Another thing that you notice is that they're actually knockoffs of the New Testament. Mm. And, um, and so there was no, there was no, never any discussion in all of the uh, first centuries of church history that those other gospels were ever kicked out or there was this big conspiracy uh, behind that. Da Vinci, the Da Vinci Code made that popular. It's just a bogus thing True. that uh, uh, Dan Brown wrote. And, and, and scholars all over the place will, um, will talk about that. Uh, actually, uh, Wikipedia is helpful on that um, in looking at in, in the discussion of the canon. Great. Um, so, uh, but again, we could, we could talk more about that at another time. Uh, yeah. And I say, I say we do do that next year. And I just, we'll just throw that one to Kathy, let her handle that, you know, on one of the, <laughs> that would be great. Um, hey, uh, I loved when you were talking about, I, I'm sure other people picked this up too. I loved when you said, and you were talking about the Gospels, and you mentioned that um, one of the things that people, uh, you know, say in law enforcement or whatever, investigators, when, when the story is so cooperative and so in, in alignment, it is actually a sign that there there's been collaboration and it might not actually be accurate i love you said two things the discrepancies the minor discrepancies in the gospels actually add weight to their veracity this is what i wrote down and as well the idea that that the gospel tellers used women in some of those accounts which again you know uh, there was not a high view of women women were viewed as property back in jesus day would there be any other things, Vic, that you would say to us that would be like other, you know, other things like those two things that, that actually add value and add weight to the veracity of the gospel accounts? Well, um, 
you 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 mentioned the uh, the the role of the of women, and if you if you looked all the way through, you would you would notice how Jesus elevates um, women throughout. Um, there there there's a lot that that I could say. Luke is the most interesting on that yeah. point because he he's really um, functioning like a historian, a historian and a biographer and a historian is pretty much the same thing, focusing yeah. on a person. Yeah. Um, but his, his use of individual names. Yeah, that was great uh, too. That's, that's, that's very significant. Um, and uh, yeah, I, that's, I, that's pretty much all I'll say about that. Um, thank, thank you for that. That's interesting that he's really, he's, so he's really saying that, you know, this is the true account and yeah. I'm calling out these people, go check with them. They'll, right. they'll affirm. I, I've never read it that way. And I just think it's, uh, that's powerful. Yeah. Uh, let me I, just, let me just put one other thing in there from, from that introduction. I didn't say it there, but there's this curious phrase he uses eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That phrase, servants of the word, and, and this um, is something that a, a scholar by the name of Richard Vaucom uh, uh, uncovered. The servants of the word is actually a technical term used for a group of people that were particular eyewitnesses who were responsible to guard the tradition of a community. And so the, the teachings of Jesus um, and the message of Jesus began to spread. And you can imagine as it spreads, it, people can get, uh, the, 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 the tradition can kind of get lost. And there was this group of people in Jerusalem who were servants of the word, who guarded the tradition. And everyone came to this group to to ensure that what they were saying was accurate. Wow. Wow. Cool. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a lover of history, I mean, all those kinds of things like that are powerful. Hey, just kind of curious, and then I'll throw it back to Trevor. When you, I have my own idea of this, when you have somebody that's learning or new, newer in their faith, Vic, do you have, do you have a gospel that you encourage them to start with? Uh, in a sense, you have to ask who, who they are exactly. Okay. And um, if, if they're Jewish, I'd start with Matthew. Yeah. One of, uh, one of my son, my, my son, Andreas, he has a, a friend, um, his name is Zion. He, is, he was a, an Orthodox Jew, and he actually came to faith through the Gospel of Matthew because it was so compelling to him. Wow. Yeah, that, um, was, that was a powerful point you made earlier around, around that, that each of the Gospel writers, you know, again, I've always said it's like if we all saw an event and we were standing in different places, we're all looking at that, we're going to see certain different things. Where you, I thought, added really strong value was that, remember, too, they were speaking to a particular audience. So the, the example you share is a powerful example of that, right? Right, right. yeah. Very helpful. Trev, you got one, bro? Yeah, sure. Um, here's another one. Um, 
Uh, I love how people are, are asking questions from something they heard a couple sessions ago to now, which means people have tracked with us for a lot of the summer, which is really cool. Uh, one person is asking in particular, um, they said, a question for Dr. Vic from Dr. Ben's lesson. So we have Dr. Vic and Dr. Ben. Um, they said they're talking about the idea of uh, who wrote Revelation and who are authors of certain uh, books of, of the New Testament. And this person wrote um, the fact that John, uh, Dr. Ben said the fact that J the John who wrote Revelation wasn't John the disciple, like John and James, the sons of thunder, wasn't that John. And, um, and so he says, my Catholic sister-in-law adamantly disagrees saying it was the disciple John. Um, how do scholars make these conclusions? And also, does that apply to first, second and third John? So can you, can you give a little bit of insight into, yeah. um, into yeah, just particularly John, but then also how do scholars conclude who is the author of certain books? That, that's, that's very good. Very good. Um, the way they do that is um, they, they use two terms. One is called internal evidence and external evidence. So internal evidence means what are the clues that we can figure out from the book itself about who the author is? Mm -hmm. And then the external evidence is what do we learn from scripture that, that could give us a clue about the author? Great. And then there's a third step is what do we learn from the early church about who the earliest writers said who the author was? Hey, Vic, could you, could you just say that again? Could you give us those three things again, please? Um, so internal evidence is what are the clues in the book itself about who the author is? And then external evidence, A, you would say, is can we figure out who the author might be from the New Testament? And external evidence, B, would be what do the earliest uh, writers in church history tell us about who the author is? Mm. Wow. Now, the challenge with John is that the name John is, is, was as common back then as it was today. So there are a lot of Johns floating around. And scholars make a big deal about... Um, making distinctions between John the Elder, it's referred to in church history, and then yeah. John the Apostle, and then there are a few other names. And some scholars are, are pretty convinced that no, these are all separate individuals. But when you look at the earliest sources in church history, you can actually make a good case that John the Elder could very well been have could very well have been John the, the um, one of the disciples of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to die on that hill, but but I think that makes more sense to me. Mm. It gets confusing and complicated because it's related to when was the book of Revelation written? Yeah. And so the further back it's pushed, the less likely it's John the, the Apostle. The Apostle, yeah. But for me, I, I think it was um, a lot of um, 
maybe you might say more liberal scholars would would say it was written in the the 90s AD, the late 90s. I think there's there's actually a lot of good evidence for it being earlier, pushed into the lifetime of uh, of Jesus, the the disciple of Jesus. Well, I think what's powerful, yeah, yeah. what you're mentioning there is, you know, a lot of times we don't think, say, for all of us now, if we're going to, you know, get get our study Bible like you're recommending, we would probably not pay a lot of attention to date necessarily, just out of an anecdotal, well, okay, that's a great date. What you're mentioning there actually brings a lot of value to to those dates. Right. Uh, right. right. So that's that's an important thing to, to understand. Um, mm-hmm. I could do this all night, Trevi. I mean, <laughs> Me, too, um, Me too. Hey, I wanted, I know we're going to cut, we're coming up on time. So here's a question I have for you because you've given your life to study uh, the New Testament. You're impacting younger generations. You've had such an impact in our church. Tell us your favorite book in the New Testament and why. Ooh, that's interesting. No one has ever asked me that. Really? Yep. Look at you, Dale. So I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a... So I did my dissertation on the Apostle Paul. Okay. And um, I did a lot of study... Um, on uh, the book of Philippians, so that's a that's a that's pretty high on my list. Um, but I I I I I love the book of First Corinthians too, because the church there is such a mess. And um, I I one New Testament scholar said if there's if there's any book that in the any of the letters that you that are the most relevant to life today it's actually the the book of first corinthians because paul had to deal with so many crazy issues great and looking at how he handled them and his reasoning is really critical so those, those are two that I would. I love. In fact, you make me want to. I'm going to go read First Corinthians and see what he says about pandemics. Maybe that's in there. <laughs> yeah, and economic shutdowns. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Good gracious. Yeah. Uh, well, again, I just you know what, um, Vic, we just want to thank you. This was fantastic tonight. I see people saying, "Okay, my favorite one ever of all of them," and yet, um, you know, it's so great that. You know, we're just so honored. I want everybody to know that both Trevor and I, on occasion, when we get, uh, we're preaching a text and we get into a quandary, it's not uncommon for us to reach out to Vic and say, all right, help us understand this, you know. And you know what I do then? Ask Kathy, huh? You know what I do then? I just go home and ask Kathy and she tells me. Well, I know. I'm trying to lift you up (laughs) and feel good about what you do. Actually, Kathy's, uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking about theology in the New Testament, you know. and it's just such, so fun to be married yeah. to somebody who's so smart. Amen. You're, you're, uh, I'm, I'm scratching where you're itching, brother, on that, for sure. So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, yeah, Trev, anything else you want to add, brother, before we sign off? No, I mean, Vic, you're, you're such a gift to our church, and uh, 
yeah, your knowledge of the scriptures and your humble spirit, your winsome spirit, um, to be able to, my goodness, Vic, I mean, you, you got your doctoral degree in Austria for crying out loud and for the way for you to teach and compact your life's work of the whole new Testament into an hour. That's so accessible. My goodness. Thank you so much, man. It just shows your heart, your humility, uh, your love for Jesus. You love for COH. We just honor you. And from the bottom of our hearts, we honor you. And we're grateful for you. And we're grateful for Kathy. The Copans are one of the best things the Lord has ever done for community of hope. Yeah. yeah. Amen. I've got, I see somebody here saying uh, my favorite professor at PBA and I recommend everybody gets this book, changing your mind. You will absolutely love it. So Amen. That's great. well, thanks. Yep. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to uh, pray us out. And before I do, um, I want to remind everybody uh, again uh, about our, um, our, our survey monkey. We're wanting to hear some feedback. Um, we believe at Community of Hope on our staff, uh, this little value I've taught us said feedback is the breakfast of champions. And so we like to get feedback and I think we'll be doing this again. And, uh, uh, we'd love to hear what, you know, what topics you would be interested in and how we could make this even in be- a better experience. We grabbed this real quickly when the pandemic hit and said, you know what, we're going to keep moving forward. And God has shown up here in a powerful way. Uh, we're going to look for other opportunities to do some more of this. So anyhow, can we all just thank uh, Dr. Vic Copan for what he offered to us tonight? Thank Let you. Let pray a blessing over us as we close. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, I think of the Old Testament passage where the writer says that your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And I'm so grateful tonight for Dr. Uh, Vic and how he shared about 2 Timothy and Hebrews 4, where we just understand the unique power, uh, Lord Jesus, that your word has in our lives. And God, we are Uh, living in times where people are taking uh, their cues and taking their authority from many, many different things. God, would you give us the capacity and the courage that we would build our lives upon your truth and upon your word? And even where, Lord, it is challenging to us, if we would live into that, we believe there's blessing uh, that, that comes with that. And so, God, um, I would just say very humbly, I want to be a a man of your word. And I know that there are lots of men and women on this uh, Zoom tonight that uh, they want to do that as well. I pray special blessings over my friend Vic, Lord, especially in this unique season when he's going back to both lead and to teach uh, at Palm Beach Atlantic University in such a unique and weird time. God, would you give him favor and uh, just give him a capacity to establish the work of his hands, all that he's holding uh, in this day. We love you, and we thank you, God, for the privilege of being together tonight. Bless our evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Love you guys. Love our church. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you.